Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast. Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of our regular Sunday Q&A show hosted live at 3pm British summertime and eventually 3pm GMT by Robin Ince and Helen Chersky with two guests each week where we take your questions, audience questions, and put them to experts. You can follow us on at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter to find out who the guests are each week and submit questions or email them to stay at home at cosmicshambles.com and we will get through as many questions as we can each week. So if you want to tune in at that time, you can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles and watch the show live each week. So it is worth mentioning that since these shows are originally uh, a video format, a live video format, there might be a couple of bits like the show and tell at the top of the show that don't work as well in an audio podcast format, but the Q&A section and all that will be perfectly fine for you here on the podcast. Since this is a live show recorded live uh, with everyone's varying levels of broadband speed, microphones and everything else Obviously, do keep in mind that there might be the occasional tech glitch, little dropout, little tiny bit of echo or something on these Q&A episodes. Such is the nature of everything in 2020. But we hope you enjoy the show. If you'd like to support what we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, obviously, uh, we're unable to get out and do our live shows at the moment, so we really rely on your support through Patreon, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles, where you can go to subscribe and you'll get lots of extra bits and pieces as well for your subscription, as well as the nice warm feeling of supporting all of the podcasts and live streams and blogs and documentaries that we are continuing to make during this lockdown, quarantine, COVID period. Anyway, on to the episode. Here's Robin. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shambles weekly Sunday question and answer session. We're here every week answering all the things, all the questions that come out of your heads during the week, those little science things that knock around, you never quite get around to asking. That's what we're here for, basically scratching your science itch. And um, we, we've got lots of questions for today. Don't forget, you can still send them in. If you just remembered a question you had this week, do send it along uh, to Cosmic Shambles via Twitter or the email address, and we will do our best to answer as many questions as we have in the time that we've got available and a little bit more admin before I introduce our two guests which is that as always um, Patreon is the one of the engines that keeps all this kind of thing running in these times so if you are able to uh, donate to Patreon or support Cosmic Shambles via Patreon that is very much appreciated it does mean things can keep running um, and there's also a tip jar if you are one-off if you're a one-off viewer you're not sure whether you're going to come back, but you would like to donate. It's not obligatory, obviously. We want to share as widely as possible, uh, but there is a tip jar and the links for Patreon and the tip jar are somewhere below this screen. Um, a few other little things. So there is a science book, Book Shambles, that has just started and the first episode is out now. Uh, and the first guest is the very excellent Paul Nurse, who uh, was president of the Royal Society and has just written a very good book on uh, the cell. And so there's all kinds of, he's got very interesting things to say. So that's the first episode of Science Book Shambles. There is an, also an extended edition. If, you, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you get a little bit more uh, of Robin and Paul um, I won't say ranting, but being opinionated about things. 
so other things that are going on, the gen- latest genetic shambles, so that was last Wednesday, that was live, and it was a COVID-19 expert panel. Uh, it's still up on the YouTube channel, and you might see little short clips from it appearing in the Cosmic Shambles uh, Twitter feed. And that is because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of debate about things now, and science comes down very firmly on one side rather than the other of a lot of those debates, like wearing masks. So if you haven't heard that episode, it's well worth watching just because they really get to what is the evidence behind some of the recommendations that are being made. It doesn't tell you about policy. It does tell you what we know now about what the science ha- says and how that's changed um, over the past few months, or maybe it hasn't changed. So that COVID-19 experts panel, uh, which was an episode of Genetic Shambles, is now available, highly recommended. Um, do ask questions in the live chat or on Twitter. We're at Cosmic Shambles. And next week, we've got a lot to get through, but this week, but next week, we've got particle physics. So um, particle physics and all that distant stuff is next week. This week, we are much closer to home. And one more thing, um, on October the 5th, which is not that far away, I'm a bit scared by the idea it's already October nearly, um, there will be a big cosmic shambles announcement. Something bonkers is about to happen. That's what usually what that means. And it definitely does in this case. So look out for a big announcement around them. And if you're on Patreon, you get to know a little bit earlier than everyone else. So uh, without further ado, let's come to... Oh, oh, Robin's not here this week. Sorry, you might have noticed that. Probably should have said that at the start. Robin uh, is indisposed this week, so I'm here instead. And uh, we have two brilliant guests. Uh, We have Dr. Helen Scales, a marine marine biologist. lived uh, interest in fish not just because of her name but otherwise and she's also got a new book she's written lots of very good books and she's got a new book coming out early next year which we'll talk about and we also have um, Dr Naira Chamberlain who is the president of the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications one of those really good very long job titles I always want to try and turn them into an acronym and see if they spell out something that's either funny or embarrassing anyway so um, how are you both how what have you what have you been up to recently let's start with Helen how are you? I'm very well thank you yes I'm very excited uh today's I'm out of quarantine um which is which is fun <laughs> so I went out to the beautiful weather outside here in Cambridge um that's because I, I was very lucky and I spent the summer by the sea which helped me personally get through this whole uh, ridiculous year very much so I've been communing with with the ocean for a few months and I'm back now on dry land um but I'm very well and uh, and looking forward to I guess the only way to kind of deal with the next few months is going to be just kind of getting cozy and being inside and and just embracing this this cozy time of year so that's my plans coming up we'll need to turn into some you know like norwegians or swedes or something like that those people where they've really got the long winter evenings sorted out um okay so what's your show and tell what have you got for us so i have got um a very beautiful very delicate lovely thing so i'm gonna have to show you this hopefully you can make out can you see that it's transparent it is very transparent it's incredibly delicate um this is a Nautilus shell. Um, so, sorry, no, it's not Nautilus. It's an Argonaut shell, but a paper Nautilus. It's other names. <laughs> it's an Argonauts. Um, I was about, I was a bit confused, but I was about to be very excited. I was like, is this some bit of Nautilus I've not seen before? <laughs> I don't know if this is a full-growing one because there are different species of Argonauts, um, uh, and some of them are a bit bigger. And this is a tiny one. These, this is the shell made by the only group of octopuses that make shells. All of the others have lost their ability to make shells, but the Argonauts re-evolved this extraordinary ability to make these incredibly delicate um, shells. Uh, And they make them in totally different ways to all the other mollusks. So snails make shells. 
uh, by secreting calcium carbonate from their mantle, which is the sort of soft bit of tissue across their body. Argonauts make them from the end of two arms. They have basically kind of silvery webs on the end of two arms and they make these beautiful shells. And it's the females that do it. Um, and they use so where as... does the shell go on the octopus? If you, if you um, make it they, at the end of their arms, what do they do with it? Yeah, it's not attached. So they just live inside it and they hold onto it with their suckers. It's completely separate from uh, from the animal. So you could take an argonaut out of its shell and it would be fine and it could just go back in again if it wanted to. So they're not fixed like a snail. So a sna you pull a snail out of its shell and that's it for the, the snail. But uh, an argonaut can come all the way out. Um, and, and yeah, they are incredibly delicate, beautiful things. A friend of mine gave me this actually. It came from Mexico. She found it on a beach and didn't know what it was. And so she took, brought it very carefully to me. Um, and yeah, and it, the other name, Paper Nautilus, is quite obvious because it's so, so delicate. Um, and they are, they're very cool. And for a long time, people didn't know what they were. Um, there was a sort of question about were they actually some other animal that was a parasite on these creatures that made the shell and that they went along and stole the shell from them. And, and one reason I love them is that the woman, the, per, the scientist who really figured out the science of Argonauts was a woman called Jean Villepur Power, a French lady in the 19th century. Um, and she was like a kind of, um, she just, she was obviously very passionate about all sorts of things in nature, but she loved the oceans. She lived in Sicily and she did all these amazing studies on Argonauts and worked out that, yeah, they do make their own shells um, and they can fix them up if they get broken. Um, they can't make a whole new one, but they can fix them. And and they are these amazing shell makers. They're really cool. I should say I'm also appropriately dressed. I have one of my <laughs> and you've got a picture in the background as well, a little like a little dum and Dumbo squid in the background. Octopus, yes, if you see that there. Yes, yes. Um, so yes. Very appropriately. Uh, we like people who come costumed. That's brilliant. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Naira, uh, how, are, how are you? And it's also awesome. <laughs> how are you and what is your background? Tell us about that. Um, well, I'm fine. Thank you very much indeed. I'm doing good. And the background is off the uh, off a new of New York because in this time we're not going to get a chance to travel so I might as well see pictures of my favourite places around the world and there we go. Brilliant and just very before we get to your show and tell uh, tell us about the Institute for Mathematics and its applications because it sounds like that's that sounds like a very useful thing to me. Yes okay so the Institute of Mathematics and its application is a professional and learned society for professional mathematicians and we our vision is to enhance um, a, a mathematical culture within the UK. It's been around since 1964 the first President um, James, um, um, James Lighthill, who was uh, involved in uh, designing Concord, and we had quite a number of um, uh, prominent mathematicians who've been president since then. So, uh, yes, and we're one of the largest uh, major mathematical societies in the in the UK. Fabulous. All right. So what's what's the show and tell you've got for us? OK, so most people know about Schrodinger's cat, you know, is it alive or dead, you know. So here we go. Schrodinger's ball. Here you go. So here we go. <laughs> Is this ball orange or is it blue? Is it orange or is it blue? <laughs> uh, I can see um, the, the audience voting like arguing. <laughs> is it orange or is it blue? Is it orange or is it blue? Okay, we've probably caused enough arguments now. <laughs> what's, what's the answer? What is that thing? Because oh, it's, it's, it's both. both, right? <laughs> it, it is both. It is both. It's both orange. It's both orange and it's blue. Are you going to there tell you. us what it was doing? Or is that, well, is that some kind of magical secret we're not allowed to know? 
um, this, the nice thing about this ball is that when when you actually throw it in the air, there's a there's a 50 50 um, um, probability that you actually will change color uh, due to its mechanics. Uh, you throw it in the air, and what the inside will go onto the outside, and the outside will go on the inside. So henceforth, there's a chance 50 50 chance that it will change will change color. So I'll just nickname this the Schollinger's ball as opposed to the Schollinger's cat. That's great. So it's like flipping a coin. So we could use it at the start of a, you know, um, well, we don't do it for badminton, but trying to think, you know, you football, know, football where they where they toss a coin at the start, you could instead throw up the mathematical Schrodinger's ball and see what see what state it comes down in. Absolutely, absolutely. And is there is there some like interesting maths in that? Like, is that just a mathematician's toy for playing with probability, or is it? Is it doing? I mean, okay, else? so. No, that the yes, I mean there are some, let's say, interesting mathematics. I mean, like okay, it mostly relates to let's say to the to mechanics. The, you know, how can you move something from the inside to the outside and ensure that it will have that consistency moving from orange to blue? So the mechanics to that is is very interesting. So away we go. Well, that sounds like a very sounds like a good toy. Brilliant. Right. Well, we're going to get uh, straight, uh, straight into, into our, questions. our questions. We've got We've lots got of questions for both for both of you this week, uh, and we're going to start with one for Naira. And um, this is a very good question, and it's exactly the sort of question that we are here to answer. Uh, it's from Melanie, and Melanie says, this might be a boring question, but I'm curious. What does a full-time mathematician do all day? I assume there aren't any physical experiments to do, so are you just trying to work stuff out? <laughs> Oh my word! What oh, are you all word. doing with your days? <laughs> okay, okay. that all depends on the type of mathematician that you are. Now, with me myself, I'm a what's called a math. I've been a professional mathematical modeler for over 25 years. And so what, what I do is I look at real world problems and I will convert those real world problems into mathematics, solve, the, solve it using mathematics and then apply the solution into the real world. And sometimes some people will come up with something crazy like, Naira, there's going to be an airplane somewhere around the world falling out the sky. Can you come up with a mathematics to, to, uh, to, to stop this problem? Or there's a pipeline about to explode. Can you come up with a mathematical strategy to solve it? Or it can be something very... Um, very mundane where I just need to just write, let's say, a mathematical algorithm. So it's constantly solving different mathematical problems at different stages. But yes, it can be, some can be quite extreme, some can be quite mundane, but all of it is, uh, is exciting. But yes, very much I'm a, I'm a mathematical modeler. So it's, it's, it tends about seeing a problem, formulating the mathematical solution, tend to write, let's say, a simulation mathematical algorithm. Sometimes, let's say, doing presentations, explaining to the experts or non-experts, saying this is how you actually apply the solution, and um, and uh, writing up reports. But it's very much day in, day out, mathematics, 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 and mathematics. <laughs> so it's just, there's this interesting idea here, though, isn't there? Which is that, which is sometimes quite hard for people to grasp, which is that we see the physical world and it's got dogs and clarinets and trees and so on in it, and and mathematics is all these symbols. But there is this translation where we can use, you know, the, you know, laws, the laws of physics or the the rules that we observe, and we can say well we can represent you know what this tree is doing by a rule and we can basically write that rule in mathematics and then we get to we get to play with it in the world of maths that is that is more or less that kind of process right yes yeah, I mean, so, I mean, so sometimes you're not even you don't even have to go let's say the let's say the laws of physics sometimes it's a, it's a let's say a logical argument because what the um somebody came up with a nice quote saying 
and deep enough into anything you will find mathematics. And that's my role is to go down deep enough to find the mathematics. So it's just not necessarily has to be left to the law of physics. It may be a case of coming up with a logical argument. You know, here's a logical argument. Convert that into, let's say, an algorithm. Run the, sim run the simulation. Um, sometimes trying to find, let's say, the optimization of, this, of some, some objective, then applying that solution to the real world and just see how the two actually relate to get together. If, if, there's, if, the, if it doesn't relate too well, see, where did I make my mistake? Did I make a mistake in my assumptions? Did I make a mistake in my logical argument? And that's the role of a professional mathematical modeler. That's, and just how did you get into that? Just while, while we're on that topic, how did you get started on all of that? Well, I mean, I was doing my mathematics degree and um, one of the modules was, was mathematical modeling. And I thought, wait a minute, here's, a, here's mathematics, which done is very much experimental and uh, the problems are not closed. It's not, this is the answer and it's right or wrong, you know, and you have to come up with that. It's almost like, because at one time I wanted to be like a lawyer, it's almost like being a lawyer, you put together an argument and you're using mathematics to do it. And I found that really exciting. So then I went and did an MSc specialising in industrial Mind. Then I decided to go out in industry and solve uh, real-world mathematical modelling, and, and I went all around Europe doing so. So, and that's how I that's how I got into it. Brilliant. Uh, well, we'll have more maths in a second. We've got a question now for Helen. Um, another, another very good question, and it's a question from John's son. How could you do an operation on a fish? Would you need to be underwater? That's a great question, and, and the fact that the fact that this does actually happen. Um, I, <laughs> do i mean I, I think that's great if you, if you have pet fish um and you you know you love them and look after them as much as you would any other pet um but yes so there are vets who, who will who will deal with with problems with with uh, aquatic animals um but you don't have to do them underwater what you basically can do is that kind of the you can pull them out of the water as long as they stay moist uh damp on the outside so you can kind of spray them with water and then you just need to put a sort of tiny hose pipe into their mouths and let the water flow over their gills and they can keep breathing now the really cool thing though i think um with all of this is um to put a fish to sleep to give it an answer <laughs> which they do do as well um that's something else i've written about in one of my books is this i there's this myth that fish can't feel pain um and that has been around for a long time and and science has taken quite a long time to catch up and really show that fish do have pain receptors they're able to perceive stressful situations painful situations and they can suffer as a consequence so of course you can't just go cutting up a fish um, that's still awake. Um, but to put a fish asleep, you don't have to inject it with anaesthetic. You can just put it into a bath of anaesthetic laced water and it will absorb it through its gills. So um, uh, so that's what you do. You can kind of you pop, pop some anaesthetic into, the, into its tank and they will fall asleep. You can pop it out of the water. As long as there's water still flowing over its gills, it'll stay alive and that's fine. And then when the operation's finished, so people do things like remove tumours from goldfish, things like that. Um, and then to wake it up, you just put fresh oxygenated water over its gills and it should wake up. And so it's really like a gas mask in the days where you used to have those, you know, gas masks. They're basically they're breathing the anaesthetic rather than um, having it injected into them. Yeah, and what? Well, and what, what about, I mean, while we're dealing with that, you know, putting a fish sleep just, obviously raises the question of whether fish sleep. So is, is the sort, I don't know how, how in-depth your knowledge about fish anaesthesia is, but is it, do fish sleep? Is there an analogy of putting a fish to sleep or does it just work differently for fish? I, I don't know any 
enormous amount about what's going on when fish sleep, but we know that they do. Um, they certainly are. I mean, you get nocturnal fish and you get diurnal fish. And so, for example, on like a coral reef, you'll get this switch over between the daytime active species and the night active species. And, you know, at the time when they're not active, they will hide in the reef and they, they do look like they've gone to sleep. You get things like... Um, parrotfish which actually blow themselves a, a sleeping bag out of mucus which they hide inside when they're sleeping because um, they're pretty unresponsive at that time too I mean that's basically what you know about the state of sleep is an animal that you know if you give it a poke and it just doesn't move so it's right. knocked out. Um, and these parrotfish are, uh, that's the case and they we think they make these slimy balls to protect themselves from from parasites that could have it's probably quite smelly and it stops um, the smell of the fish from being obvious in the water. So things like snails will actually come along and um, uh, try and suck their blood, which is lovely. But this protects them. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, such a lovely question. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. I mean, yes, the whole question of fish sleeping is interesting. We'll move on to a slightly related fish. This is maybe what happens when the, um, when the operation goes wrong. Um, and it's from Ben. And Ben wants to know where are all the dead fish? Because he thought most fish float when they die. At least that's, you know, when people's goldfish dies, uh, that's how you know it's dead. right? Uh, so shouldn't the ocean and beaches be covered with old dead fish? Oh, I, that's such a great question. I mean, it is a bit sad that we know this because, you know, if you're <laughs> goldfish, you know, something's not right. Although actually it might not actually just be dead. It could be that they've got a problem with their swim bladder. So, so a lot of fish have these basically gas balloons inside them, which help them uh, to float uh, rather than sink underwater. So it means they can save energy. So most fish, most of the time, want to be kind of neutrally buoyant. So that way they can save energy and, and not have to be const constantly swimming. So that uh, means they're neither floating nor sinking. They're just kind of sitting in the middle, wherever they're put. Just hover there. Yeah, exactly. So and that's what you want to be when you're scuba diving as well. And that's when you really get that sense of flying underwater. If you can make your buoyancy neutral so you don't sink or float and you're just hovering there. And it's a lovely sensation, um, as I'm sure you know, Helen, how wonderful it is just to feel like you're flying around underwater. So if you've got that neutral buoyancy and fish do this with their their um uh, the gas bladders. Divers have to have a, a, a jacket on the outside, which we fill with air. So, I mean, so one disease, as diseases that fish can have, is of the swim bladder. So that if they if they if it gets too full, then they pop up to the surface. That said, um, dead fish do um, initially they do float, and that's because they are beginning to decompose inside. And so the the so the the bacteria that are decomposing their tissues are beginning to release gases. And that gets trapped inside them. It's like they are it's still a little balloon. The whole body lets that, that gas stays inside and they float. They don't stay floating. That's the, I mean, that's the Ben's question is because eventually that gas will get out one way or another. Um, <laughs> We're not going into specifics here about exactly how it happens. Somehow that gas will escape. It probably will start to get eaten by something or, or there'll be some way for it to escape. And then those fish will sink. Um, and so they will end up on the bottom of the sea. And that's actually really important. And we now know all sorts of sea creatures, whether it's fish or whales, um, turtles, when, they, when their remains land on the bottom of the sea, especially in the deep sea, it brings really important food. And we actually know that there are amazing, unique ecosystems that have evolved specifically to feed just on the dead bodies of of things like big things like whales are particularly good because there's lots of food in a dead whale but fish as well 
Um, and there are these armies of di different species that come in, waves of different species that will be the first scavengers. Then later on, you get other things that eat the bones. There are worms that have specifically evolved to eat the way the bones of whales and other species. And there's like dozens of species which we're finding more all, all the time. I was in the Gulf of Mexico a couple of years ago on an expedition and looking into the deep sea. And we put down alligators, dead alligators for the first time into the deep sea to see what would happen to them. And about six months later, we went back and looked and we found two new species of these bone eating worms that no one had seen before. It's suddenly um, having a day. We've never seen one of these before. Let's get stuck yeah. into that. <laughs> so, so, yes, it's really important for those dead things to end up in the deep sea. And there are these ecosystems that really rely on that source of food. So that's really what happens to all those dead fish in the end. Well, I think there's also another um, part of Ben's question we... that you've got to ask why they died. And I think that most fish in the ocean probably don't die of old age. You know, they get they die because they get eaten <laughs> um, or a lot of them. So there's, there's also if, if something ate it, then I think, you know, the, all the gas, as you pointed out, isn't going to build up. It's just going to sink straight away. Um, so then you then your fish goes straight down. So generally living matter is more dense than the ocean. That's really I mean, it's one of these fascinating ideas about the ocean, isn't it? That everything is basically raining down all the all the useful bits, all the nutrients are constantly raining down towards the surface away from the sunlight anyway right we can't spend too long on ocean stuff even though you and i could clearly talk about it for a long time so we're going to come back to naira um and we've got a question naira from david turner who says uh, he once saw a talk where someone compared calculus to darwin in the sense that once you understood darwin you can make sense of all of nature but they never really explained how that related to calculus. He says he had to do it at school, but he can't remember the rest of it. Um, never mind how the idea it's 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 some it's the key to the rest of math. So so what's the deal with calculus? Perhaps maybe just in broad terms, tell us what calculus is to start with. Uh, OK, calculus. I mean, calculus is um, to do is, you know, if you want to find the area of a, of a function or you want to find the gradient of the function or even you want to go into more, let's say, more uh, n-dimensionals uh, uh, areas and volumes, etc. That's that's very much what uh, calculus is. And also when you're talking about maximization, optimization, minimization, that is very much uh, is um, is calculus. Now, the teacher that actually said that, I would need to speak to that teacher and saying, really, I want you to explain that a bit more. However, there is one question, there is one point that he, he's probably is quite right. He's like, I remember, um, you know, breaking down one time and this uh, road assistance uh, company actually picked me up and we were on the motorway and we're, we're stuck in traffic. And the gentleman says to me, he goes, I don't understand why I'm stuck in traffic, and then and then the traffic starts moving, and we can't see why the uh, why why this uh, this has been stuck in traffic, and he doesn't realise that that actually has to do with his calculus. And I have to explain to him about running water into a bath, and you say you got a tap, and you're running the water into into a bath, and you plug the bath, and the, and the water rises, and then you unplug the you unplug the the water, and then the, and the bath and the rough water goes down. See. The part that you are in the, in the bath, let's say you're a particle of water, you don't see where that, you know, by the time you reach the plug, you don't realise that the reason why I'm going down that plug, you know, it's because the plug hole was actually plugged, you know, you just see an empty space. And I'm saying it's the same principle when it comes to, you know, a traffic jam on a motorway or any road system, and that all has to do with Calculus, you know, it gives us it gives us an understanding how things change with time or change to a respect to some other variable. So, I I hear what he's saying. I don't absolutely agree with the teacher. We need to speak to that teacher saying, listen, you are there are so much other aspects of mathematics that you are actually excluding that doesn't relate to calculus. <laughs> mathematics is much more wider than that. But I can I can 
kind of get where it's again, but I don't totally agree. Well, I think as a physicist, we use uh, we use calculus as you say, about things that are changing. So if nothing was happening in the world and everything had just settled down to equilibrium, we wouldn't need calculus because it's all staying the same. Where, and the times we use calculus, like you said, oh, when the bath analogy is really good, when things are changing and we need to sort of work out how all the different changes, what the effect of all of them is together. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, but yes, there is quite a lot of other other mathematics in there. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's one of those mysterious bits of maths, isn't it? Like people remember calculus, partly because it's this kind of alien word as this weird thing that is the difficult bit. Do you, how much do you come across that? Like the idea in maths that there are some difficult bits and people never really get across, they see them as hurdles that they never really got across. And they think there must be something exciting on the other side, but they never got there. I mean, so for instance, you you know, people's journey through mathematics, you know, you start off with, with numbers, if you can, you did the long multiplications, you go up to the 12 multiplications, and then all of a sudden that horrible teacher introduces algebra and thinking, oh dear, you know, why are you introducing <laughs> algebra? And then all of a sudden they introduce calculus and then it goes on to the, but thing is, under the day, mathematics is, all of mathematics is beautiful. You know, all of mathematics is beautiful. And it's not, uh, and yes, you get these concepts which are, which are challenging and, and but it, it all, it's like a language. Mathematics is a language of, of, of science. Um, the person that came up with with calculus came up with with a way to say this is how we can actually express it in this form. And, you know, I believe it was a Leibniz. Well, Newton and Leibniz did it at the same time, but they they argue who came up with the uh, <laughs> with, with differentiation differentiation first. So yeah, that's that's my that's my views on the on the matter. Well, the nice thing about that invention, isn't it, is that there's actually a shadow of that still in mathematics today because of the symbols. Because one of the things that confuses, you know, I still find myself explaining to students in the first year at university is that there's different ways to write the same thing. And one of those came from this character Leibniz and one lot came from Newton and yeah. we still use both of them interchangeably and so it's kind of written into the mathematics yeah but it tends to be the one to be the one Leibniz tends to be the one that's most which is more popular <laughs> you know <laughs> you know the, the dy by dx you know if we're thinking what do we prefer x dot or dy by dx and most people are going to say dy by dx you know so that's you know it has it has a much more um artistic much more elegant it's much more you got you can actually can see it flowing more now the thing is with the the newton's the newton's you know x dot you know once you move into the area of partial differential equations what you're going to do x and a half of a dot do you know what i mean so uh, well, we can now have a debate on Twitter among those of you who do remember your about which which format you remember. I think both have their advantages. Depends what you're doing. Um, okay, let's go back to some um, uh, ocean things. Got another question for Helen from someone who has a quite. I mean, it's an I don't know an acronym rather name JSYD2015. Uh, so, and Helen, the question is: Is the salt water content of the ocean the same all over the globe? Ooh, good question. So um, the oceans, the are, oceans very are very salty. Uh, on average, everywhere, it's it's something like th 35 grams of uh, yeah, salt. Yeah, on average, yeah. But that is the average, and it does vary. So it's not a silly question at all. Um, there are all sorts of factors which influence um, the salinity of the ocean. Um, and Helen, I know you know a lot about the... Yeah, I, I asked you the question and I felt bad because I'm the physical oceanographer. <laughs> 
your territory, so maybe I should turn it back to you. But um, I know that, yeah, that this is it is the, the difference in in, in uh, salinity is very important. I'll quickly mention on why some of the salinity varies, and perhaps I'll hand it back to you to say how important that is. But I mean, simple things like when it rains a lot. So in, there's a whole there's a strip of uh, the equator where it rains a lot, and the oceans are slightly less salty. Um, and we know this there's a there's a satellite actually that measures salinity from space. And so we've got these global maps now of where of the sort of surface salinity of the oceans. Um, and, and yeah, and there's a kind of a, a slightly more dilute part in the uh, in the uh, the equator. I think in the poles there are, is there's lower density, uh, lower salinity because uh, of the melting of ice sheets and glaciers, that kind of thing. Um, and then by uh, where there's rivers coming out. So at the Amazon, for example, where all that water is coming out of the Amazon River, the salinity of the ocean is slightly. Uh, is slightly less. And then we've got really big, strange, which for a long time people couldn't really explain, things like that the Atlantic is slightly sorted in the Pacific. Um, and one possibility for that is that it could be the, the Andes mountain range, which is so weird to think that what's going on on land affects what's happening in the ocean. But the theory is, and I think they've, they've done studies of this, is that the rainwater that's coming in off the Pacific hits, essentially, um, it's coming eastwards and hits the Andes and then falls back down as rainfall. Um, so it doesn't, uh, so it sort of di keeps diluting the Pacific, whereas you haven't got that going on in the Atlantic. And so the salt levels there don't get diluted by that sort of, that, that huge rainfall that you get in the Pacific. Um, but salinity is really important, isn't it, Helen, for, for you know, for how the oceans work? Really. Yeah, and so there's a point here, which is one of these incredible things that I think everyone sort of forgets, which is the salt composition of the ocean is pretty much identical everywhere which is astonishing all by itself so we know salt is sodium chloride but actually if you look in the ocean it's mostly sodium chloride but then there's potassium and you know bromine and bits of iodide and all these other like this mix but the mix is exactly the same wherever you go and what that tells you is that the ocean is basically really well mixed for salt the salt is there all the, all time. the time like you said it's the fresh water that comes in and out that changes how salty different places are and you get places like the mediterranean which is very salty because there's lots of evaporation and then that kind of pours into the Atlantic um, and then the Baltic Sea which is kind of hidden up underneath uh, Sweden uh, is fresh because it's got loads of river inflow and so it's got this ridiculously low salinity so it does it does it doesn't vary very much but it, like you say it's really interesting but just to come back to a fish question off the back of that because I think this is really interesting this and this is something that you will know more about than me and it is um, the fish that can go from salt water to fresh water so salmon for example there's this one of the what's the and there's a word that isn't androgynous, but it's andro. What is it? It's an awful word. <laughs> Can't um, remember. It goes both ways, doesn't it? Andromaginous and or something. Androgynous. Um, yeah. It'll come. Back, it'll come back to me. But yes, there's a word for for when they they well, go both ways. To, to fresh water and some that um, go from fresh water to salt, so they can go both ways. Yes. Did you want to know the word? Was that the question? Or yeah, well, it's just really cool, isn't it? Because in one, one, uh, in one environment, they're desperately trying to get rid of the salt. And on the other one, they're trying to keep hold of the salt. And, and they, you know, marine creatures are really, they it's a lot of adaptation just to deal with it being such a salty environment. Yes, androdromus, androdromus. Someone on Twitter has looked this up already and is about to tell us the answer. Awesome, thank you very much. Um, yes. So, no, it's really fascinating. So for species that live in the ocean, the, the real problem is too much salt on the outside and, and their body concentration is less than that. So you're basically um, uh, going to be losing water by osmosis to sort of try and it's that biological process of, of water 
diffusing out of a body across a biological membrane to sort of try and balance out these differences in salinity. So fish have these mechanisms to try and avoid that water loss. And they will, for example, just drink lots of water and then have a mechanism for, uh, for expelling the salt. So we don't have that as human beings. We can't do that. Our kidneys are not... Uh, we have not adapted to, to consuming vast quantities of salt water. It's very bad for us. We need to drink more fresh water to actually get rid of the excess salt. But fish have adapted, marine fish have adapted to this very well. So you take a salmon and then you move it into fresh water because that's where it goes to spawn and everything is reversed. And so basically they have to suddenly switch their biology. Um, uh, and uh, and by doing so, so they have to sort of stop, basically stop drinking and they start peeing. This is the physiological adaptation for moving into fresh water is because then instead of losing water, they're gaining, they're basically taking on and on lots of water because their bodies are now more concentrated than the water around them. Um, so there are physiological changes that take place and it does take them a little while. So they often have to hang around in estuaries and sort of adapt their biology before they can move into fresh water. Um, and interestingly, I don't know if we've got time to talk about the deep sea. There is a kind of application. Very quickly, because we have to get back to some maths, but go on. Uh, the same thing happens as you go deeper underwater, because one of the ways that fish deal with pressure is by putting lots of these chemicals in their body called TMAO, trimethyl oxide, um, and that increases the concentration of their tissues as well as protects them from pressure. But there comes a point where they can't have any more of it because it makes them too concentrated. And it would be the equivalent of a freshwater fish moving into the ocean. Um, but they've but so they, we think there's like a maximum depth that fish can get to. And that's as deep as they've got. It's about 8,200 metres. It's the deepest we've ever found a fish, which is a theoretical limit based on this biology of what they put in their tissues to stop themselves from essentially collapsing under the pressure of all that water. It's pretty cool. So if you'd ever, yeah, ever wondered whether there's a, you could find a fish the right of the ocean, apparently if there's, there's your physiology of why it doesn't happen. Because uh, the, deep, the deepest part of the ocean is a bit deeper than that. Okay, let's come back to some mathematics. Um, Naira, there is a question from Ashley, uh, which is, is there a particular thing in mathematics that you know to be correct, but it's so unintuitive that you sort of don't believe it? Uh, he's thinking of the Monty Hall problem, uh, and he says, or he or she, they know the maths behind that, but it still seems like it's the wrong answer. I have to say, I don't know what the Monty Hall problem is, although I feel like I should. <laughs> okay, you know? I well, first, well, first, first things first, let me explain about the Monty Hall problem. Right, the Monty Hall problem, it was uh, based on a quiz show that was done in America. I, mean, I can't remember, it was in the 50s or the 60s. And what happened was um, the contestant would go in front of three doors and then the, the show host would say, right behind the, one of these three doors is, is a, let's say, a goat and the other one is, is a nice car. And, and then what the contestant does, he, he chooses one of the doors and then what the uh, host will do, he will open up one of the doors, which definitely has not, you know, th that definitely has not got a goat or, or, a, or a car. And it says to the, um, to the contestant, do, would you like to, uh, would you like to choose a different door? You know, would you like to change? And if the contestant says uh, yes, um, then they'll 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 change to another door. And then what will happen? Um, what the, what we found out is that they actually increase the probability of them winning the the car if you actually switch as opposed to remaining where they are. And everybody and this has this has confused 
so many mathematicians and statisticians over the years because they would argue that surely it should be even, and uh, but it's it's not it's not the, it's not the case. So that's the that's the Monty Hall problem. Now the thing is, even though let's say intuitively, uh, uh, you know, you're thinking that the, you know the probabilities are the same. If you do let's say a simulation, run a simulation, and you look at the two strategies, you actually see yes, the, the, it, it, you can you know it's better to actually to to swap. And then another problem is called the birthday problem. Let's say for instance, you have um, um, a, a number of people in the room, and they all got an even chance of being born on the same on the on the, on the same day. You, you know, the same day. And you say, well, how many people should you have in the room so that's a 50-50 chance that two people will share the same birthday? And people intuitively thinking, oh, you know, half of 365. That's is it. No, no problems. Well, the answer is actually. 23 and people thinking how can it be that low yeah and again so well, let's be clear here so if you have 23 people in a room yeah in that situation the chances are that two of them share a birthday yeah there's a 50 50 That's... chance that two of them will share. yeah yeah so and so so the, the, the key is well you know intuitively you're thinking well that can't be that can't be the case again if you do let's say a simulation or go into the proof of the math you can actually see yeah it is true it is it is it is 20 it is 23 so that probability is, is one of those probability freezes, is one of those things that throws up these these uh, crazy uh, things, which, which is what makes mathematics very really, uh, exciting. I mean, another thing, if you just want to go uh, on another field of mathematics, is Rajamanujan's um, um, Pi theorem. And you look at it and you're thinking, how on earth does this formula, you know, made up of all of these integers numbers and it's an infinite series, can approximate Pi one over one over pi, and uh, um, so that's that's the beauty. So of we should say that what what this is is that pi is obviously that it's three point one four, and then it goes on forever with yeah, lots yeah. and lots of different numbers. And yeah. this formula you're talking about is a a very well behaved formula, but it allows you to work out what pi is, and it's just that there's a disconnect between the weird chaos of pi, yeah. and then this very specific formula that tells you what it is. Yeah, because you got this, you got this formula made up of uh, um, um, factorials and and, and 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 integer numbers, and there's an infinite series, and it's just and it's and it's all combined together, and somehow this formula is a good approximation of one over pi. So you could use it to work out pi, and you're thinking, how did you get from that part? To uh, to to uh, to what to uh, one over one over pi again? It's when you look at it from an intu intuition point of view, it's not easy. But when you actually do the numerical simulation, you can actually say, oh yes, it's actually true. Or if you're going to go and have a look at the proof, you can actually see it's true. But when you actually first see it for the first time, you're thinking that can't be right. But any good scientist, any math, any good mathematician would actually go and take that step and actually investigate. And that's and that's what's the the beauty of mathematics is. I have to say, I really annoyed Matt Parker once. I think, in fact, I think it was, it might have been the first time I met him years ago, Winchester Skeptics in the pub. He came to give a talk and he, he presented the thing with the birthdays that you just said. Um, and I think there were probably about 200 people in the room and he had just gone through the maths to establish that if there were 23, uh, it was odds on someone, you know, should, should share, someone should share a birthday. And I stuck my hand up and said, I've never met anyone that has the same birthday as me can we see if there's someone in this room? And he was like, yeah, okay, whatever, go on then. And nobody did. <laughs> and he was, and I've, and I've always wondered what it is. I, I did find out I shared a birthday with someone at their funeral, but I don't think that counts. Mm. And I think that since then, one person on Twitter who I have met in real life has told me they share a birthday, but I have never knowingly met anyone in person 
knowing I share their birthday. And it really annoys mathematicians because the statistics oh. say that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, then the thing is, one of the things we have, to, we have to understand is that we have to step back and recognise the, the assumptions that is made in that argument. The assumptions in that argument is assuming that the people's birthdays evenly distributed around, around the year. Now, if we actually did a statistical analysis of it, the birthdays are not evenly distributed, you know. So hence for the birthday that you're born on is not evenly distributed. That's why, you, you know, you'll find it hard for somebody to share the same birthday as you. But if you said, if you take the case saying, if the birthdays are evenly distributed, away we go. Brilliant. OK, let's go uh, from birthdays back to a slightly more serious question from OAUS. I don't know who or what that is. Um, but Helen, uh, they say there's increasing talk about deep sea mining for minerals that might be used to make solar panels for renewable energy. Isn't this just robbing Peter to pay, pay Paul? Such um, an important issue at the moment. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately and I've, I've written uh, at length about it in my next book that's coming up. So uh, so there'll be more about it there <laughs> next year. Um, but really, um, this is uh, a new pressing issue, an environmental issue that's kind of coming up really quite quickly. Um, so for those of you who haven't heard of it, basically, um, there are mineral deposits in the deep sea in various different habitats, including extraordinary unique places, the hydrothermal vents, which are these cracks in the seabed where boiling hot water comes gushing out. And there is life that is um, persisting on these chemicals in these extreme conditions. Um, we've only known about them for about 40 years and we're still learning so much. So hydrothermal vents are one place where there are metals in those these big rocky chimneys that form at the cracks um, down in the deep sea. Also, um, abyssal plains are covered in things called... Um, Manganese rocks. I remember when I was at school um, years ago, we talked about these manganese nodules that, that were sort of scattered across the abyss. And back then, the idea I had was that that was all there was. There was just rocks and mud and nothing else. Um, but we now know that these are also the basis of really important ecosystems. Things like uh, deep sea octopuses um, use these rocks to um, to fix, essentially fix their eggs to. So it's like an octopus's nursery. And the rocks themselves have um, species living inside them. Um, it's a really rich uh, but very little known ecosystem. Um, and also seamounts. Seamounts, these under sunken underwater mountains, these extraordinary geological features in the deep sea are also potentially targets for deep sea mining. Um, and and the, I guess to the sort of long story short, there's a lot to talk about with this, but, but what's being said at the moment by corporations that want to do this, that are thinking about trying to mine for the first time. It's been on the agenda for decades, but only now do we have the technology and and possibly a reason they say to do this, which is this idea that we need these metals to, to, to have a green economy. Um, so the argument goes that the only sustainable way for us to, to get rid of fossil fuels from our economies um, is to, uh, to, to find these metals in the deep sea, which we will need, they say, for solar panels, electric car batteries, this kind of thing. The problem is that there's lots of um, there's all, I have lots of problems with all of these assumptions. Firstly, um, that this is going to be more sustainable. We simply do not know this is the case. And all of the science unequivocally is saying right now that the chances are that it will have an enormous impact on not only on ecosystems, but potentially on the functioning of the whole ocean and the climate. The deep sea is incredibly important for the carbon that's locked up down there. We're really messing with stuff that we don't fully understand. So to say, oh, well, you know, this is going to have less impact than mining on land 
just we do not have the science to back that up. Um, equally, the other part of the question is, do we actually need those particular metals, things like rare earth metals, cobalt, which we find down there? And fine, we do need those at the moment for the way that we're currently making batteries, but we're currently making some types of solar panels. But that doesn't mean that's what we're going to be using in the future. And I think a really important part of all of this debate about how we should be using the deep sea is the idea that we can innovate. And there are other ways of making solar panels, of having car batteries, for example, and so on. And, um, and we need to embrace those new technologies and say, well, let's find solutions that don't require potentially messing with this whole enormous part of our planet um, with consequences that we simply don't fully understand at the moment. Um, you know, we've got really exciting potential new things like spray on solar panels that don't require any of these expensive rare metals, which we could spray on walls and on car roofs and things made from completely different uh, minerals that aren't required, that don't require deep sea mining. So why don't we go and think about trying to find other ways of using our resources in a really smart way, rather than just opening up this whole new frontier. Um, and well, I think it's really important that it is basically a red herring argument, because as you say, the technology is such that we are not going to need those minerals. Like things are changing. We're, we're, there's less and less cobalt in batteries all the time. Um, most of what makes solar panels anyway is silica, and there's certainly no shortage of that. It's it's a straw man argument, I, I think, that is just a distraction. That there's clearly no. Um, there, like you say, there are so many. We're making organic semiconductors. It's not necessary. So I'm going to go from that to a question which Jeremy uh, posed and. If Robin was here, he would ask me this. But because it follows on, I'm going to I'm going to ask this question, and answer it, and one of you two might have an opinion. Um, and Jeremy says um, that that um, at some point he heard me ask me the question: How much better can batteries get with current technology? And is it the case for batteries that there's going to be um, the next big leap to stumble on something that we've not even thought of, which is sort of what Helen was hinting at, that we've always had this idea that batteries especially have to be made from these big heavy metals that are difficult and weird and have to come from somewhere else. Um, and there is an enormous range of battery chemistry. The thing is, at the moment, it's all incremental gains. So, you know, the next battery technology will get you 10% better or 20% better. There's no, as far as I know, and I've asked quite a lot of people about this, there's nothing that's visible at the moment in the minds of scientists which would make it 10 times better. So, so I think there's a combination of things here, that there are certainly ways to make cleaner batteries, to make them easier to recycle, to reuse all the things we've already put into batteries. Let's have those around again. Um, but it's actually really hard with batteries to see the genuine game changers that, that will really you know but it doesn't mean it's not out there uh, and there are enormous amounts of stuff we can do with the batteries we've got so um so so yeah i don't think we do need to stumble on something we've not thought of we can go a long way with what we know now but we can't see that next step um just at the moment okay let's go back to the maths and we have um a question from Marcus Mer, Marcus Mercer, don't know what that is. Um, uh, anyway, so the question for you, Naira, is how do we know that our mathematical understanding of the universe is true and not just applicable to the organic human brain? Wow. Well, deep uh, philosophy for you here. Deep, deep philosophy. Oh, you need a philosopher on, on, on for, for this one. Um, the, the, the key thing, the key thing is how do we know it's how do we know it's true? All, um, let's say, all mathematical models, you know, are based on assumptions and has limit uh, has limitations. And as mathematicians and as scientists, we always look to actually to test our, mathemat our mathematics against what we actually observe to say, 
is it true? And then we conjecturize saying, well, let's make a prediction. If our mathematics is, is correct, this is what we'll believe is to be true. And we're continually testing that. One of the things that you'll find is a, ma a, a mathematician will never become complacent saying, this is my mathematics and there it is, you know, and, and, and walks away, especially when it comes into mathematical modeling. So, so how do we know it's, it, how do we know it's true? Seeing as the mathematics when, it's, when we're talking about the solar system is always evolving, is always, it's always being challenged. And yet there are some things that we can say, yeah, this is true, and we got the we what reserved. This is, it agrees with the mathematics. Away we go. So, I don't I don't want to sound like it's a bit of a cough out. I'm saying yes and no, but <laughs> that's what you it is. You are saying yes and no. <laughs> this is like yes get your no. get your blue and the orange ball out again, and it's yeah, a yeah. his answer. <laughs> there there are some things where you can say been looked at. It's well understood, and until something very big or crazy comes along that she says actually your assumptions are, are are wrong or or this is um what you're dealing with is not a generalized case it's a very specialized case that's where it, that's where it is so not but that's that's mathematical that's mathematical what he's talking about is not so much mathematics it's more about mathematical modeling and mathematical modeling is based on assumptions and uncertainty and it's about it, mathematical modeling is not about proof mathematical modeling is actually providing evidence and there's all out there that actually shows that our conclusions is not absolutely built on solid ground. But at the end of the day, we're moving, we're best. actually are moving in the right direct direction. We're testing so, against uh, reality. Reality is yeah. checking up on you, basically. You go, oh, yeah. you can do that. So you need to rethink this. Yeah, yeah. So that, and, and, that's, and that's what makes, you know, I can say, and I'm an eye over and over again, that's what makes mathematics exciting. Mathematics is not a cold, frozen subject. One plus one equals two, and that's it. You don't know, mathematics goes beyond, you know, mathematics go beyond that. It's, a, it's an evolving and exciting subject. So, yeah, that's my, that's my view on the matter. That's so, your pitch they, for mathematics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant, more of that. Okay, so um, Helen, next one. We're getting towards the end. We've still got lots of questions, so we're going to go a little bit quicker now. But Mark has a question. He says, every time I've been to an aquarium, I see these fish, although he's not sure that they're fish, that stick up from the bottom of the sand like little tubes, and they spit out tiny rocks, dust, and pebbles. What are they? What are they doing? Is that their mouth, or is it the other end? Um, they're usually in tanks with things like clownfish. What's hiding under the surface? I, I don't know what this is. I really don't. Little tubes. I mean, there are fish. I think they might be. Are they bivalves? Is this a mollusk that's hiding underneath and punching, like filtering at one end and sending things out the other? I really don't know. I mean, there are. It could be that. Possibly. I can't. I can't think what this might be. Worms. It might. There's those worms as well, aren't they? That sit down the bottom and filter, and then they sort of kick up little plumes. Yeah, there are worms that sit in the bottom of all various sort of sandy beds. I mean, it's not, it certainly isn't, it can't be something like a uh, garden eel because they're quite big and they're quite <laughs> difficult to keep in. I know you can get them in aquariums, these very long fish that sort of sit, stick in bars and stick their heads out. And But they're planktivores, they eat the plankton, so they, they don't uh, spit out sand. There are little fish, things like gobies and jawfish, which will excavate little holes and they will get mouthfuls of sand and kind of spit that out. But that's not a tube. So I don't, I really don't know. I'm very stuck. I'm a bit stuck on this one. <laughs> Sorry. Well, next, Mark, next time you go to an aquarium and you see one of these, try and catch a picture of it. And then uh, we'll ask again. Please do. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Well, one, one of the things about the ocean, and it actually goes back to what Helen was saying about the deep sea, is that all the interesting bits are hidden in the structure underneath the surface. And if you take a slice of the seafloor and kind of cut it, uh, 
you know, cut a slice through it. There's all these things and burrows and there's all this 3D, stru- 3D structure. But the problem is, firstly, it's all brown. And secondly, you can't really see it from the surface. And I find it really frustrating. Like, I've had this argument with... Um, producers on tv shows where you get this amazing sample of ocean sediment and it's got these things and worms and stuff and there's all these layers but it's all brown and they just look at it and go oh well, that's a bit boring you go no it's not it's really interesting there's all these things and they're doing stuff and they're recycling things and the fact that they're brown doesn't make them boring and it's this real problem with everyone looks at the colorful fish but anything that's brown and in the sediment is sort of dismissed do you get frustrated by that Helen or is that just me <laughs> uh, I mean I haven't come across the brown sort of c- color thing before but definitely the hidden stuff I mean that's generally across the board a problem with the deep with the oceans and especially the deep oceans that it, it's a it's out of sight um yeah and uh, and I have to confess that I mean a lot of the stuff I write about is the kind of colorful fish the exciting octopus that sort of stuff but but equally you know tapping into that smaller world as well the microscopic world um is where the really fascinating stuff lies and uh and it is hard to bring that to life in a way i mean you've got to find ways of of really making that um relevance and and at least kind of understanding it and seeing it is, is, a, is a bit of a challenge as well but yeah it is hard yeah okay back to the maths then so dave l has a question uh and which which will please matt Nowen, matt parker so speaking as a layman whose knowledge of maths is basically from watching matt parker's youtube videos uh, the Goldbach conjecture seems like it should be easy to prove. So why isn't it? And he he clarifies, and this is very, um, uh, dip, well, you know, it's it's very kind of him. He's not asking you to prove it. Just explain why it's difficult. Okay. <laughs> so well, could you perhaps start with what the Goldbach conjecture right. is? Let right. me go back. Now, is it saying that any number, any integer that is greater than two can be expressed as a sum of two prime numbers. Yeah, that's it, right. So, how do we prove it? <laughs> it's one of the hardest problems out there, so. Okay, why is it so difficult? Well, the thing is, when you come in that to a proof, most people, when they do a proof, there are two ways of doing, um, um, preferred ways of doing proof. Proof by contradiction or proof by inter- uh, proof by induction. Proof by contradiction, prove that it's not true. Uh, so hence, we'll jump on the computer, run through all different cases and then find an example where it doesn't happen. Now, I think they've gone up to something, they've gone up to something like 10 to the power 18 and they still can't, you know, say, you know, it's, it's true all the way up to the, to the number 10 to 18 and the computer's probably given up by then. So you can't, so we can't, we can't find a counter example. So that's one, that's one. We can't find a counter, uh, counter example. Proof by induction, right. Start off with an, an easy case. Start off with a general number. So let's say, Let's start with the number n, which can be expressed by the sum of two um, prime numbers. And let's say one of those prime numbers is two. And then look at that other number, look at the number and say, add one to it. Can we can we still express it as the sum of two prime numbers? And the yes, because all we need to do is instead of using two, we use three. So in that case, in that specialized case, it's all easy. But then we then let's say, for instance, let's start with two odd prime numbers, yes? And then they say, if, if we increase the number that, that we're trying to do sum by one, but if we put one on the other side and add one to the odd number, that comes up as, as an even number. Now, the even number, apart from being two, cannot be a prime number. And um, so henceforth, you can't use proof by induction because then you, you have to start looking at thinking, well, what was it? 
two prime numbers can we use it and then you're going all you're going all over the place and then you get into this case of saying well how do you predict what's the next prime number and nobody's really knows about that so you're getting into a whole different realms of mathematics so it's like you come into another problem which is going to another problem you're solving another problem you're solving another problem that's why it's it turns out to be very um very difficult because the two tra traditional ways of doing it cannot solve it you have to come up with a whole different different style of proof to solve that problem and that's why it is difficult to prove that is a very good answer thank you very, very good answer much. thank you very much i was i one of my favorite um so that proof by induction is one of those things that people hear at school and there's a lovely limerick that has been knocking around for years i don't know where it came from but it goes like this a friend who's in liquor production has a still of astounding construction the alcohol boils through old magnet coils he says that it's proof by induction <laughs> which is a very technical joke but it's a very very good one <laughs> yes very very much so <laughs> different different type of proof by induction but perhaps more more appealing for some people um okay right uh we have a question helen from and this has a very long answer but you've only got a couple of minutes um from patrick chalmers what political structures and changes to our systems of government would give our species a chance of reverse reversing Oceanic heating, marine biodiversity collapse and pollution by plastics, agriculture and industrial waste. So basically, please, can you solve the problems of the world in less than one words? Um, no problem. Yes. <laughs> um, the political structures. So governments. What? Yeah. Is, is the approach wrong? I think what he's asking about perhaps or hinting at is perhaps holistic views of looking at the world rather than. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, political structures and changes to our systems of government to fix to fix the whole lot. Well, I mean, we, we could we can't do much worse than we are at the moment in many ways, I have to say. Um, perhaps that's a little bit too strong. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be a holistic view we need to take. Um, we've got to change so much about how we value um how how the resources of the earth are valued perhaps if we just sort of focus in on on the using part of things and um, to bring in the costs um would be one thing to do which we just don't do at the moment that you can take uh from the natural world and make money from that but uh, any kind of impacts that come as a consequence whether that's carbon released or plastic or anything else doesn't come on that score sheet so it can still still seem to be a profitable thing to do um so I, maybe that's one one aspect that really really needs to be changed is to really bring those costs into those decisions that are made uh, about how we use uh, this wonderful planet of ours and all its resources but it's such a difficult thing perhaps another whole book i will yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that, i think a more holistic view is seeing ourselves as part of nature, nature and not separate to it a lot of it's that sort of thing and also the other principle i think is very important is forgetting that um, you, we can't forget. We can't have the attitude that away is somewhere else. Like there's a nice. I did a whole thing about poo <laughs> last. Uh, I think it was last Christmas at Nine Lessons, where if you look at Basil Jet's sewers in London, they were brilliant because they took the poo away. And for, this was a brilliant solution for the City of London for 150 years. All the poo has gone somewhere else. And the problem, obviously, with Basil Jet's system is that when it rained more than expected or there was more poo than expected the system overflowed into the river and that was just carried out to sea and no one ever thought about a way being a part of our own world because it was a way and i think the idea that there's somewhere else is one that we've got to get rid of it's basically you don't poo in your own backyard right backyard so don't put poo in the ocean because it is your backyard you know it's that kind of thing okay very quickly uh naira one more for you uh, in high school we were taught to use sine cosine and tan as though they were all equally useful um 
as an adult just generally interested in science shows, I often heard sign referred to and occasionally cosine, cos, but never tan. Where are they used? Well, they're used, they're the used everywhere, used in, uh, used in architecture, used in radio waves, it used, used on the TV, used on the CD. You just have to just end it with just saying that mathematics is indisputably the greatest subject in the whole wide world. So just get used to it, and that's it. <laughs> That is, that is, I'm not sure we're going to let, not you, sure we're going to let you get away with a blank. This whole point of a science qu question and answer session is to have questions and answers. <laughs> but there's, there's your answer. There's your we're answer. to question you on your blank. That's your answer. That's your answer. <laughs> that is your answer. Why do you need sign cars and tan? Because mathematics is indisputably the greatest subject in the whole wide world. There if, you go. If you ever write a math textbook, maybe you already have, I don't know. It's going to be the shortest textbook ever, isn't it? Because maths is awesome, the end. <laughs> that's going to be it. Bestseller. <laughs> okay, right. Well, that seems as good a place to any to end our investigations of the uh, natural world for today. So, um, just oh, very quickly, Helen, what's your new book going to be called? Ah, it's called The Brilliant Abyss, and it's in a celebration of the deep sea and the problems as well that we're causing down there. And when is that going to be out? It comes out in February 2021 here in the UK, and then a bit later in the US and everywhere else. So, and um, Naira, have you got any projects on the go that you'd like to tell everyone about? Yes, um, yes um, at the end of this uh, end of next month, we're having a, a virtual conference called The Black Heroes of Mathematics, being put on by the IMA, the London Mathematics Society, the British uh, Society for the History of Mathematics, and the the, the International uh, Math, uh, Centre for Mathematical Sciences, where we have black mathematicians from all around the world doing a virtual talk about mathematics, um, both technical and testimonial. So that would be a very good uh, uh, conference that we're putting on. Brilliant. Um, and can you um, and can you maybe if you put the link on Twitter or tell us the link and we can help share that, um, that'd be brilliant. Okay, well so... Uh, Quick reminder again, there's Patreon if you'd like to support us. There's a tip jar. All the links are below the the bit of the screen you can see us on. Uh, don't forget to look for Paul Nurse on the first science book shambles, the genetic shambles on COVID. Um, next week, we will be talking about particle physics with Dr. Linda Cremonosi and Achin, um, Achintia Rao from CERN so get your particle physics questions out and again there will be this very big announcement on October the 5th from Cosmic Shambles so keep an eye out for that uh, although you will find out a little bit earlier if you're a Patreon subscriber and that is it for this week thank you to everyone who sent in a question thank you to our two fabulous guests and we'll see you next week thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.